this series on the church covenant. Acts 2 and 1, when the day of Pentecost was fully come, they were all with one accord in one place. Verse 42, and they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine and fellowship, breaking of bread, and in prayers, and fear came upon every soul. Many wonders and signs were done by the apostles, and all that believed were together and had all things common and sold their possessions and goods and parted them to all men as every man had need and they continuing daily with one accord in the temple and breaking bread from house to house did eat their meat with gladness and singleness of heart praising God and having favor with all the people and the Lord added to the church daily such as should be saved probably the most comprehensive place in scripture that would encapsulate most of the things that are taught in the church covenant. That's why we've chosen this particular text for this series, very obviously. We're going to begin the fourth paragraph today, and I would just remind you again about the previous three. Remember the first paragraph of the church covenant deals with how we got here, covenanted together as the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. The second paragraph tells what we are to do here as a church functioning under our head, the Lord Jesus Christ. The third paragraph tells us what we are supposed to do when we are not here and assembled as far as individuals out in the world most of the time. And then the fourth paragraph tells us today what we are to do as far as when we're not assembled here in our relationship with one another. So we have a relationship with one another when we are here. That is in paragraph 2. Our relationship or testimony in the world is paragraph 3 with the unbelieving. Our behavior conversation as we called it out there, deportment. And now again, verse or paragraph 4 is our conversation or behavior toward one another when we're not here. When we dismiss this assembly, we don't just forget about one another. So that's what this one's going to be all about. Let's read it, shall we? And of course, all of them, uh, the first, the second, third, fourth, and fifth, all engage, also engage here. We further engage to watch over one another in brotherly love, to remember each other in prayer, to aid each other in sickness and distress, to cultivate Christian sympathy and feeling and courtesy and speech, to be slow to take offense, to be always ready for reconciliation, and mindful of the rules of our Savior to secure it without delay. So as stated there, very practical, very biblical according to the New Testament, that when we leave here, we do not leave off caring for one another but uh, again we care for one another as stipulated in this paragraph uh, the fourth paragraph is very similar in many ways to the second paragraph the second paragraph again the aim is speaking of the church but since the church is made up of individuals then again it is inclusive but there it is the church as an institution or a body collectively individuals together. Here it is one another. In the second paragraph, it takes a more spiritual tone, motive, goal, function. Here it is a more personal 
thing. So there is a similarity, but obviously a distinction. It says further engage. Remind you of that word engage. It is to pledge or commit to being responsible. Okay? So we have the commitment, the pledge, the responsibility to the Lord and to one another. Two, watch over one another in brotherly love. And we emphasize to you how this paragraph starts, very similar to the second paragraph, which speaks of how the church is to do everything by the aid of the Holy Spirit and in Christian love. And we stated to you in that paragraph that if love is not present, forget what comes thereafter. Love must be the foundation for all obedience or else it amounts to nothing, absolutely nothing. And love is our motive. If we're not motivated to obey out of love, then we would be like the Ephesian church in Revelation that received the letter and was commended for many things but said you've left your first love, you know? Uh, it just, it's just not going to work. It's backwards. Love must be the foundation. So again, that second paragraph says the church is to function on the basis of love, and we are to function on the basis of love to those that are outside of the assembly and certainly to those who are within the assembly, else it is pure and blatant hypocrisy. So, watch over one another in brotherly love. And I would say to you, the watch over needs to be addressed because a lot of people watch over other people in the wrong way. There's a proper way to watch out or watch over somebody, and there's a wrong way. But if you're watching in any way or form, you're giving attention to and that's the primary thing this first phrase here is covering. When it says to watch over one another, that means we do not leave off our attention of each other. In other words, it's warning us of negligence. When we leave here, we don't forget about everybody. No, we continue to care outside the door just as we should care inside the door. So it is to give attention to, not to be negligent of, okay? And again, we, we're just not like quails or chickens that huddle up here at the designated time like they do on a roost, and then as soon as it gets daylight, we all go our separate ways and forget about everybody we roosted with. No, 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 that's crude, but churches function like that. They can function like that. We can be warm in here and cold when we get out the door. That's not what we're to do. Watch over. Give attention. Pay attention. Same concern outside as inside. And the negative aspect of this watching over is not meddling or watching over meticulously for wrong reasons. And I mentioned that not because I think we've got a problem with that, but because it can happen. You know, well, did you hear what brother so-and-so did you? Oh, brother, well, uh, you know, and, and checking on people or looking in on people or being conscious because you're nosy. No, no, the motive is love. It's not self-motivation. 
It's concern for that individual out of love, not for gossip's sake in that sense. And I remind you again, what does the Bible say we're to be known by as Christians? A new commandment I give unto you, that you love one another. For by this shall all men know you are my disciples. It must be done. Everything must be done out of love if you are to be blessed and rewarded by it. Of course, we bear the name Philadelphia Baptist Church. If we didn't bear the name, we'd still have the same responsibility of brotherly love. Hebrews 13 and 1, let brotherly love continue. Why do you think that's even in the Bible? Because our love can wax cold. Because we could lose our first love for the Savior and so forth. So by cultivating love, we maintain love, not neglecting it in that sense. The scripture in 1 Corinthians 13, 5, I think that really gives us uh, the meaning of what we're talking about right here in watching over one another in brotherly love. This is in the love chapter, of course, charity. And in verse 5, it says, Charity or love doth not behave itself unseemly. And this next phrase is the one that I think is what's implied here that we're talking about. Seeketh not her own. So again, if you're watching over somebody else because you genuinely care, you're doing it for the right reasons. You're not doing it because you're seeking your own or what you may profit or what little tidbit of gossip or news you might spread to everywhere else. No, you're doing it for the right reasons. And that's what love does. It doesn't seek its own or the person's own benefit but others. Now, give an attention to... What is an example of that? James gives us an example of that, of watching over in brotherly love. In James chapter 2, verse 14 and 16, and I'm reading this verse because I think this one, this verse, these verses will be transitionary into the next point about prayer. James says in chapter 2, verse 14, What doth it profit, my brethren, though a man say he hath faith and have not works, can faith save him? If, and he gives an example of this very thing, if a brother or sister be naked and destitute of daily food, and one of you say unto them, Depart in peace and be ye warm and filled, notwithstanding ye give them not those things which are needful to the body, what doth it profit? Even so faith, if it have not works, is dead being alone. So again, if we have faith, we automatically have love one for another, and it is not a difficult thing to watch over one another if there is a need. And this is exactly what he's saying. If there is a need, if there is places you can help, and you have the means and ability to help, and you just tell them, well, I'll pray for you, you've done the wrong thing. Is it wrong to pray for him? Absolutely not. But as James said here, you're going to talk about being a person of faith and love and compassion and you're not going to do anything for them? I mean, show your love by giving or meeting their needs. So it's very simple if it's rooted in love. The next one is that association to remember each one or each other in prayer. And indeed we should. We have mentioned before about praying for other people outside of this assembly, for lost people, those that need help, and how hypocritical it would, do, it would be to pray for those outside of the body and neglect those within the body. So, as James says here, in the example I gave, yes, we are to pray for them, but we are also to put it in action also. 
That reminds me of an old story I heard a long time ago. It's kind of crude. It's probably not very proper. But anyway, this woman uh, lived in a certain place, and they built a liquor store across the corner. Well, she was a godly woman. She just couldn't stand that liquor store over there. So she got somebody else, a friend or somebody, was praying with her and said, we're going to pray that that liquor store burns down or does something, you know. We just don't want it here and this, that, and other. She got this other woman involved, and it wasn't but a short period of time. The thing burnt down. And the woman was just absolutely surprised and amazed that it burnt down because she'd been praying for a long time by herself and it hadn't. And when this other woman got involved and behold, the, the thing burnt down, she said, I just don't understand. said, as soon as I got you involved, you started praying, you know, it burnt down. And it said, wonder what happened? And the lady looked at her and said, I put legs to my prayers. <laughs> you know, and in a sense, you get the point that <laughs> we shouldn't just sit on our haunches and pray if we can do something. Now, I'm not ad advocating, of course, burning down things. But again, uh, you know, that's the proper attitude. Do what you can and pray. And so that's why both these things here are, are here. I'd point you back to Philippians chapter 2 again, a verse we've read before in this study. And those first four verses... And again, out of love, carrying one for another ahead of ourselves. If there be any consolation in Christ, any comfort of love, any fellowship of the Spirit, any bowels and mercies, and that's referring to love and compassion, fulfill you my joy that you be like-minded, having the same love, being of one accord, one mind. And then here it is, let nothing be done through strife or vainglory, but in lowliness of mind, let each esteem other better than themselves. Look not everyone on his own things, but every man also on the things of others. I've recently uh, been thinking about that because I was reading about someone who had a nature like this, that no matter how rude, how ugly, how bad people treated or mistreated this individual, her main was concern was always them, not herself, not her mistreatment, but the state of their soul. And she'd give away things that she needed and deprive herself literally for the welfare of her enemies. That is, that is just, that's just grace. That's all it is. And that's the only way you can do something like that and maintain that attitude. So as it is here, to look to the things of others ahead of your own, that's the grace of God. That's what our Lord did. That's what He teaches us to do. When you do that in prayer, that's what you're doing. When you help, you're doing that very same thing. In Paul's epistles, you always read, uh, if you're still in Philippians there, just look at the salutation in chapter 1. In verse 3, I thank my God upon every remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine for you, making requests with joy. Uh, nearly every salutation of his letters, he mentions this, that he's praying for all of them all the time. He, why did he do that? Because he loved them. Okay. Now, let me say to you here, it's easy to pray for somebody you love. It can be difficult to pray for somebody that's your enemy. But we are admonished to do that also. So, should be easy on the first. Shouldn't be difficult whatsoever. The next thing stated is to aid each other in sickness and distress. And again, if we are maintaining brotherly love, none of these things are hard or difficult. They are easy. It's almost like if you have the attitude to do these things and maintain the proper brotherly love in your heart for one another in the church, you could go through these things and say, you don't have to tell me that. You know, I mean, that's, it's just natural. And it is. 
It is a natural evidence of your love for others to aid each other as we can or enabled, like we read in James, when a fellow member is in sickness or distress. Because I would remind you, we are what? A body. A body. I mean, you can get cancer and it'll affect the whole body. Right? And that's usually what we think of. But let me tell you, an ingrown toenail can affect the whole body. Right? I mean, a little crack or a cut somewhere can affect the whole body. I mean, it can become septic and stuff. So again, everything, big or small, about the body is important in that regard. Uh, Romans chapter 12. Scripture there speaks toward this about aiding one another in sickness or health or what have you. Chapter 12, verse 15 Rejoice with them that do rejoice and weep with them that weep. Whichever the circumstance may be, we rejoice when we have good health, we complain when we have bad health, you know. I mean, and we are a body. And so we're not all experiencing the same things all the time. We all have our ups, downs, problems, difficulties, struggles, curves in the road, bumps in the road. We where they are next week. 1 Corinthians 12 again is that text that reminds us about the body. And in verse 25 and 26 it says that there should be no schism in the body. The members should have the same care one for another. And whether one member suffer, all the members suffer with it. Or one member be honored, all the members rejoice with it. In that regard. So, aiding each other when we can, how we can, this is exactly what Christ did. Let me read one scripture to you from Hebrews that exemplifies this from our Lord Himself. Hebrews chapter 2 and verse 18. Hebrews chapter 2 and verse 18. That verse reads, and this is speaking of Christ, the previous verses, it says, For in that He Himself has suffered being tempted, tested. He is able to succor them that are tempted. Okay? So we're all going to have our good times and bad times, and that can flip at any moment. So again, whatever others are experiencing affects all of us in the body. The next thing says to cultivate Christian sympathy. Well, again, that's something you can't teach. That's something you can't give. That's something you can't instill in somebody. But again, if there is brotherly love there, it will be there. It will be automatically there. This is, this is simply caring because you love. All right? Very simple. Cultivating Christian sympathy, compassion, caring. And I don't have to give you a bunch of examples. Again, we just point back to our Lord Himself. Nobody was more caring than our Savior was. He cared about people. He cared for people in that regard. And we are taught to do the same thing. It says two ways here about Christian sympathy. In feeling and in courtesy of speech. And that is the proper order. And there is certainly a danger right here. If we are not compassionate in feeling, we're certainly not going to be compassionate in speech. Because as you know, and as James says, what comes out of this thing wagging around here in our mouth 
is a display or advertisement of what's in the heart. And it is an unruly evil and it gets out of control real quick. What's in the heart just bubbles over to the tongue and the mouth many times. And this is something we are to discipline ourselves with in that regard. So we cultivate Christian sympathy, caring in feeling because we love what we feel. And if we don't feel it, you better be careful about how you're going to say it in that regard. So the tongue reveals what we feel. You don't have to say everything you feel. And certainly we shouldn't say everything that we feel, right? I mean, we are to be discreet in what we say. We need to be slow to speak and quick to listen and be discreet about how we speak. But if we do love and we do care down deep, it's going to manifest it in how we speak to others in a kind way, in a courteous way, in a way of compassion. And if you, let's just face it, if our feelings ain't right, we need to keep our mouth shut rather than embarrass ourselves, okay, and dishonor our Lord. We need to be working on our feelings, not on our mouth, okay? If you can't control your mouth for overrunning your feelings, then again, work on your mouth. But the root of the problem is what we feel. If we're feeling compassion and caring for one another, then that's what's going to come out of our mouth. Not something offensive or anything like that. The next thing deals with offense. And we know how the tongue can offend. But it says to be slow to take offense. And as we look at this, and there's some other things here that really all goes together, and it's all really covered in Matthew 18, and we're going to go there. But to be slow to take offense. You know, if you're quick to take offense, that's a display of selfishness, isn't it? Always offended. Always offended. Least little thing upsets, offends somebody. That's just selfishness. You know, and we all have that demon of selfishness. Sin, uh, every sin we commit comes from some form of selfishness in, in that regard. So we should be slow to take offense. We should realize sheep in the midst of wolves, yeah, I can see a lot of, a lot of offense there. In the world you'll have tribulation, yeah. Uh, they're going to deliver you up and do this to you and do that, yeah, yeah. You know, I mean, God's people are going to get the worst of it. So just be ready for it. And remember this, nobody was more offended wrongly than the Lord Jesus Christ. All right? And he dealt with it very gracefully. So we need to be slow to take offense. Let's go to Matthew 18, which kind of covers this subject and the rest of what's said here. Matthew chapter 18, and we'll begin there about verse 15. And this is uh, Jesus speaking on brotherly offenses or trespasses. He says, Moreover, if thy brother shall trespass against thee, go and tell him his fault between thee and him alone. If he shall hear thee, thou hast gained thy brother. But if he will not hear thee, then take with thee two, one or two more, that in the mouth of two or three witnesses every word may be established. If he neglect to hear them, tell it to the church. If he neglect to hear the church, let it be unto thee as a heathen man and a publican. So there's a persistent effort there for reconciliation is the first thing we'd see. And secondly, 
where things go awry is verse 15. When there is an offense or somebody is offended, regardless of whether it is legitimate or illegitimate, because many times many offenses are just very simple misunderstandings that could be solved very quickly. But, as you know, the tendency is, the natural tendency is, even we who are saved by the grace of God have that old fleshly thing of when somebody offends us, what's the first thing we want to do? Tell somebody else about it. Not go to the person and work it out in that respect. And the Lord said that's the way it's to be done. Keep it between you. Nobody else needs to know. And then when it's resolved, nobody needs to know. You don't even need to claim the victory to everybody else. Just let it be. Praise God. Okay? Deal with it at the source. But don't distribute it and display it to everybody else but where the problem lies. But that's the tendency. You know it as well as I do. So Jesus says here, you know, work it out as quickly and privately as possible. And here again, I'm going to use the example of marriage again because again, there should be no problem that two Christian people who love one another, and if they're Christian people, why don't they love one another, can't be worked out. Right? I mean, what's the basis for this if a brother offends? And in this, let me, let me say again, what would someone have to do that loves you to really offend you? Okay? You know, that's the thing we forget many times, isn't you? Well, so and, you know, you say in your own mind, well, so-and-so did this, you know, and we're upset about it. Well, again, I've said this over the years, and I still believe it. If we would stop long enough to think, okay, this person loves me. I know they love me. So this thing they've done that has offended me, they probably were totally unaware they did it when they did it. You know, they love me. They wouldn't intentionally do that. They might do it out of negligence, or they might something might be just going on. And they may not even be aware of it. You know, so it goes back to that previous thing. If we're slow to take offense, and we would pause to consider when we feel offended, well, here again, it must have just been accidental, because I know it, they wouldn't do that intentionally, because they love me, and I love them. A lot of times, that would end it right there. How big of an offense is it going to take? And I'm just throwing this out, okay? I can't tell you. I don't have a concrete answer. How big a thing would it have to be to cause you to have to go to them and address it or bring it up? I think it would have to be pretty, pretty big, wouldn't it? I mean, if we are love of one another and care for one another and putting each other first. Because most of the time we might just sweep it under the rug and forget it and forgive it right there. Thinking that, well, I probably just got offended too easy. There's no need to take that up with him. It might just make a bigger deal than it is. It's really no big deal at all. Might be the best way to deal with it. However, there will be some that necessitate that. But again, I think we could head a lot of things off. And I've had people over the years tell me things. John Churchman, well, so-and-so this, and I'm so-and-so that, and uh, and, I, and I'll have to say most of those things that have come to me were so petty <laughs> they weren't worth talking about. You know? I mean, 
And a lot of times I want to say, wait a minute, get over it. You, you think they did that intentionally? You know, just probably not. And I almost sometimes I'd want to say, I dare, you, just, I dare you go ask them and see if they did that wanting to hurt you. They may have done it negligently or forgetful or been having a bad day, but I don't think it was a premeditated hurt. You know what I mean? <laughs> and so again, uh, but I'm just addressing it because we know what the natural tendency is in that regard. In uh, verse 35, here again, taking offense and reconciling. Notice verse 35 of Matthew 18. This chapter sums up after so many uh, parables and other teachings on this subject. So likewise shall my heavenly Father do also unto you, if ye from your hearts forgive not every one his brother their trespasses. So slow to take offense in that regard, and then always ready for reconciliation. I mean, the desire should always be reconciliation. Well, what is reconciliation if there's been an offense? Forgiveness. That's it. There must be forgiveness. And this is the same chapter down at verse 21 when Peter, hearing the Lord's words on these things that we read, down in verse 21, came to the Lord and said, How oft shall my brother sin against me and I forgive him till seven times? Question. And uh, when he says here, sin against me, that's the offense. He was offended or to be offended by some wrong. And the Lord said, I say not unto these seven until seven times, but until seventy times seven. And that's not a numerical thing that you keep account of. <laughs> okay. What's he saying here? He said all the time. Constantly. Persistently. Be, be always in a forgiving spirit. Not the, I, me, that upset me and I'm offended because he, she said, did this, that, or the other. But being a big boy, being a big girl, and saying, well, they probably didn't mean it, and just let it go. Or else you're going to be a miserable, upset, selfish individual. You know? Because again, we're talking about members of the same body. We're talking about brothers and sisters in Christ. And we remember Christ forgave us, and again, if we can't forgive, we've really, really, really got a serious problem. Colossians 3.13 says, Forbearing one another and forgiving one another. If any man have a quarrel against any, even as Christ forgave you, so also do ye. One of the worst things that I have ever heard and that can be said by anybody that claims to be a Christian are the words, I just can't forgive them. There's no biblical basis for that. There is none. There is none. There is no exception. We just read it. If you can't forgive, you've got a big problem. And you know where the root of that problem is pointing to? Have you been forgiven? I mean, if you're going to trace it down, if you're going to do some serious soul searching and examination, which you should, if you claim to be a Christian and you can't forgive, just keep tracing it back. 
And it's, I'll tell you exactly where it's going to land. Verse 35, Matthew 18. Have you been forgiven? And I say to you, as I say so often on many things, if you ain't got it, you can't give it. And the bottom line, if it hasn't been given to you, you don't have anything to give. If you have not tasted grace, if you're not a child of grace, you're not a sinner that's saved by grace, you don't have any grace for anybody else. And if you have not been forgiven, no wonder you can't forgive. But the other side is, if you have been forgiven and are sure you've had forgiven, what is your problem? That's the black and white of it. And it hits hard, don't it? And it's hit us all. It's hit me more than one time, let me tell you. Because this old flesh wants to be selfish and it wants to be puffed up, you know, and, and it wants to retaliate. And I don't deserve that and this, that, and the other. And if you can ever get your mind wrapped around what the Lord suffered and how He dealt with it, you'll feel about that tall. It'll put us in our right state of mind, what? Always ready, and I might add, always seeking reconciliation, which is forgiveness. And again, says, according or mindful of the rules of our Savior to secure it without delay. And that's what we just read about in Matthew 18. And there, Paul writing to the Colossians. Uh, we've covered this before about anger, but again, secure it without delay. A lot of times when there is offense, there is not only selfishness, but there is anger there. And anger prevents a person from rectifying or trying to reconcile the problem. It magnifies the problem. Ephesians 4.26 again says, Swiftly, don't let the sun go down on your wrath. Take care of this. Seek reconciliation quicker, quickly as possible. Because the longer it goes, the bigger it gets, the more there is to deal with. Alright, let's look at that last paragraph and we'll wrap this up today. It says, We moreover engage that when we remove from this place, we will as soon as possible unite with some other church where we can carry out the spirit of this covenant with the principles of God's Word. And this paragraph deals with when and if we are providentially removed or displaced from this body. Now there's a common thing of churches of same denomination and like faith exchanging membership letters or simply letters of recommendation. And this is something that has developed down through the years and is pretty much traditional because there is no biblical reference of somebody uh, being lettered from one church to another. So the thing here when we deal with this last paragraph is not what most people think. It's not joining the church of your choice wherever you decide to go, whenever you decide to go, and what have you. We've dealt with it already. 1 Corinthians chapter 12, the Lord sets the members in the church as it has pleased Him. So as I've told all of you who've came here for membership, you need to make sure beyond any shadow of a doubt that it is God the Holy Spirit that is leading you here and placing you here. And if you embrace that, you're going to embrace very seriously about being displaced from here for any reason other than God Himself doing it. And the bottom line is, I can't give you an example in the New Testament where God removed somebody from one body and put them in another body and we know God did it. 
An old preacher told me years ago, he said, there's nothing in the New Testament about church transferring church membership. All you see in the New Testament is people staying where they start. The only thing I can give you along this line that is directly from the Scripture, and again, no direct teaching concerning transfer of membership. And I've seen a lot of it over the years, and the biggest part of it's all been for the wrong reasons. And it didn't turn out well. It didn't turn out well. If you want to leave a church, this church or any other church, anybody that's a member of a church, and you don't feel the Lord is the one moving you from that place, why in the world would you want to go? And for what reason? And I've seen a lot of people do it. A lot of times, uh, one of the most common, I'd say my experience has been the most primary thing has been a job. Okay, well, they're transferring me to here, or I'm going to take a new job there. And what have you. And most people who have, my experience, personal, have come to me with things like that or told me things like that have not even given a church there a second consideration. That's as backward as it gets. That's as upside down as it gets. And I've told people, the Bible says, seek ye first the kingdom of God. It doesn't say seek your own welfare, seek your own job, seek your own achievement, whatever. Anybody, I, everybody I've known of that has left a church for personal reasons, I don't know of one success story. I don't. Well, we'll try to find a church when we get there. That's as backwards as it gets. Seek ye first the kingdom of God, you know, and His righteousness and all of that. And you do that where? By being where He wants you doing His will. So, there is nothing cut and dried and what have you. And like I say, I've heard a lot of reasons why a lot of people are going in different places. And of course, then there's the church hoppers that go everywhere like a grasshopper. They're, just, they're never going to stay in one spot too long. That's because they've never embraced or taught the truth or don't believe the truth that the Lord sets the members in the body as it pleases Him. When you take that seriously, you'll take it seriously about leaving it. However, the only thing I can give you, and I'll give this to you quickly, is that you could be providentially displaced from this place. Not the Lord saying, Brother so-and-so, you know, I want you pray about it. I want you to be a member of a church in this state, in this town, and blah, 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 blah. No, no. But let's suppose it hasn't happened in America, but we could even go back to World War II or some places in some countries now. People are displaced because of war, because of pestilence, because of famine and things like that. And there is an example of that in the Scripture, and that's concerning Priscilla and Aquila. And I'll show it to you. And so this is a possibility, and we see it in Scripture. Let's go to the book of Acts, chapter 18. And uh, you know about them because it hasn't been all that long. We've talked about them in the book of Second uh, Corinthians and so forth. But in Acts 18, 1, after these things, Paul departed from Athens, came to Corinth, and he found a certain Jew named Aquila, born in Pontus, lately come from Italy with his wife Priscilla, because that Claudius had commanded all Jews to depart from Rome, and came unto them. And because he was of the same craft, he abode with them, and wrought, for by their occupation they were tent makers. So here we see by a political move, or what have you, these individuals were displaced from wherever they were in Italy and they were found at Corinth where there was a church and where Paul went. 
And of course, they became lifelong friends and companions of Paul. Down in the 18th verse of this chapter, it, Paul left Corinth. And it says, after Paul, Paul after this tarried there yet a good while, took his leave of the brother and sailed thence into Syria. And with him Priscilla and Aquila, having shorn his head in Centuria, for he had a vow. And he came to Ephesus and left them there. But he himself entered into the synagogue and reasoned with the Jews. So they were displaced from Italy. They were at Corinth. I have no details to tell you why they went with him to Ephesus, but that's where they ended up. Okay? And then uh, there's a reference in uh, 1 Corinthians 16 and 19 to them. 1 Corinthians 16 and 19 says, The names of Church Asia salute you, Aquila and Priscilla salute you much in the Lord with the church that is in their house. And he would have been speaking about from Ephesus. That's where we believe Paul wrote this letter. So they were displaced and they were in a church in Ephesus and the church happened to be meeting in their house. Well, finally, the final thing we hear about them is in Paul's uh, benediction, so to speak, in Romans 16, the end of this epistle, and in verse 19, and remember, he's writing to the Romans, right? Believers in Rome. And in verse 19 of chapter 16, let me see here. Uh, wrong verse. Let me find it here. Uh, Priscilla and Aquila are mentioned here. If somebody sees it, tell me where. Uh... Oh, verse 3. 16 and uh, 3. Greet Priscilla and Aquila, my helpers in Christ Jesus. Okay, he's writing to the Romans. So now, they're back at Rome again. Probably, the, you know, again, the emperor changed, which historically we're told indeed it did, and they were allowed to go back where they started from. So they had a little circuit of being displaced and being in other places. And we know a lot of people have. World War II and things like that. I mean, people got displaced. People got several uh, Different providential circumstances could cause this to happen. But as far as a church member just saying, well, I think I'm going to go to this place or that place or whatever, and not entertaining the Lord's will and spiritual things first, huge mistake. Huge mistake. The Bible says the Lord sets the members in the church as it pleases Him. And uh, where He's put us, where He's planted us, is where we ought to be seeking to bloom, not look for more fertile ground somewhere else. Alright? So uh, the Bible doesn't have a lot to say about that. But again, the Christian's desire will be to be in a church. A Christian will not want to just, well, I can just wander off. No, no, no. If you understand that teaching and it affects your heart you're going to want to be in the Lord's church somewhere. And that's all the Bible has. I can give you from the New Testament says that. But again, the premier thing, all these things are practical Christian teachings from the New Testament. There's nothing new. There's nothing man-made there. They're all biblically based. This is what we have pledged to the Lord and to one another when we became members of this body. It is a full-time responsibility we have of it. There's no greater calling. It is a great honor read that church covenant frequently and may God keep us in one accord in this place as long as he's pleased to do so.